Welcome to the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. Today, I am delighted to welcome the art historian and broadcaster, Andrew Graham Dixon. We spoke about an awful lot during our conversation. We talked about the uh, role of the art critic. We talked about the work that he's doing on his new book on Vermeer. And we also talked about whether you can separate the art from the artist when it comes to thorny questions of morality and much, much more. Thank you very much for joining me, Andrew. I wanted to start, um, I recently read uh, The Critic as Artist by Oscar Wilde, and he, he talks about, well, as the title suggests, that to be a critic is in itself a, 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 an artistic endeavour. Do you, do you agree with him? Well, that's, I think that's an interesting question. I think if you're entering fully into an artist's work, it, it requires a degree of empathy and projection that I, I would say... Mm. Um, is of the same kind as perhaps, for example, an actor yes. might have to um, exert, whereas, whereas an actor uses their whole body yes. and gesture and all sorts of aspects of the language of a human being to incarnate someone else. The critic's job is slightly different, or the writer who treats, seeks to empathise with an artist of the past. Yes. It's a slightly different um, task, but the same act of empathy, the same act of imaginative... Um, self-transcendence is necessary. And, and I would say it's not. It's, there's nothing mysterious about it. There's nothing mm. mystical about it. For me, it's all about trying to understand who someone else was. But I always find that with the best criticism, you do get a sense of the critic as well. And the, 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 not just the views of the critic, but the, uh, the creative impulses of the critic within the work as well. Is that something that you, you think is right? I do think that's right. I found it in my own experience... You don't know it at the time, but when you look back over your life and you look back at things that you wrote at certain points, which I've had to, done, to do, for example, if I'm making an anthology of mm. writing, or you know, there might be another reason, I've seen, as it were, who I was, and I've seen what I was doing, and I've seen... I, it, I mean, I wouldn't ever want to tell anybody what I'd seen, yes. but I thought, well, of course, that's what... I would have been interested in that then, wouldn't I? Because I was having a terrible problem with this, that, or the other. Yes. So I think there's no question that that you know, the idea that you can write a book without putting anything of yourself into it. Yes. Well, is crazy. And I'm sure it's true of science as well. I've spoken to scientists, and they they say, which you might not think would be true, but scientists have said that there's a huge amount of creative autobiography that goes on in the realm of science. I'm sure. I mean, that's what they try to avoid. They try to avoid that confirmation bias that can come, um, and and try, and try and test their own. Uh, methods, but repeatedly. that confirmation bias can be precisely what leads you to a great insight. Of course, it's very powerful. So I think that's, that's this is one of the ways in which I think people struggle with the notion of criticism because, of course, it is so subjective, isn't it? And yet, in a sense, uh, good criticism doesn't get too bogged down in its own political or ideological worldview, or does it? I'm. There's a sort of criticism which. I associate, for example, with Walter Pater, you know, wonderful, flowery writing yes. about, for example, the Mona Lisa writing that famously inspired T.S. Eliot when he wrote The Wasteland. Now, that kind of writing, that's where criticism almost becomes a form of poetry. Now, I've, I was maybe more interested in that when I was younger. Mm. And as I've become older, I've become more and more interested in the kind of criticism, or it's not even criticism really, it's not quite the word I'd use, the kind of historical research into the lives of artists, mm. and into the cultures where artists live. I've, I've become more and more interested in trying to think more laterally, more freely, away from the conventions of what art historians so far have said yeah. about artist X, Y, or Z, and look actually, who were they? What was their culture? What was their history? At the moment, I'm writing a book about Vermeer. Mm. And, and I didn't set out to, to do it, but I can say that you know, even at this point before I've you know, finished writing, I've been very, very deep into the research of it, that really looking closely at the facts that we have, the actual material facts, has led me to a totally uh, different Vermeer than, than you will find in any book 
So your experience of it changes on the basis of your in, in, enhanced knowledge about the context. Absolutely, by thinking about by thinking about Vermeer's relationship to the politics of his time, to the history of his time, to analysing his relationships with other people in Holland at that time. Who were they? What did mm. they believe? Because we don't know anything about him. So it's absolutely, it all has to be done through, uh, as it were, understanding the society that's around him because he's this sort of hole in the middle. There's not a single statement by him. Um, so you're, you're trying to understand him. Like, who did he know? Who was he married to? Why did he marry them? Yes. And why did he paint all those pictures for that person? Who was that person? Who did they connect to? What were their beliefs? And, and when you put all that together, um, you know, as I say, I, I think I've arrived at a completely, without meaning to either, mm. it, wasn't a, <laughs> it wasn't the agenda for the book. The agenda was just, I would really like to delve into him and write more about him. Yes. And I think it's, to me, it's all the more valuable for being so unsought, because it's genuinely, it's a discovery to me. It's like, wow, gosh, that is, is that what I think now? I could never have imagined thinking that when I started out. So in a sense, you, you see your role as critic to illuminate what the artist's intentions were, or perhaps, or is it, is it more about your response to it? It's more about freeing yourself. Mm. See, most, if you, if you ever write a book about somebody, you, you know, you find very quickly when you read all the other books, that's what you do, you, yeah. you, you, you read everything, <laughs> and you very quickly realize that somebody wrote something very clever and brilliant at the beginning. Yes. And everyone else has more or less repeated that. Yes, I've seen or that a number Or played of times. variations on it, but they haven't ba altered the fundamental idea yeah. about this person. Because people are essentially very, very herd-like. Even very clever, very good art historians, and I'm sure thinkers in any other sphere, they're very, very herd-like. Yes. And, and if you can somehow free yourself to think about the facts and think about the paintings or the texts, yeah, whatever yeah. it might be that you're writing about. If you can free yourself, then you can write without preconception. And that is very, very hard. And you probably can never manage it. Probably impossible. But writing without preconception to me is, as it were, you know, thinking about free speech. You know, in a way, that's, the, that, that's, that's how to free yourself. Mm. Because it's the structures that you, you know, it's, all, it's partly the structure of fear. Yeah. Dare I say something new about Caravaggio? <laughs> Dare I try to suggest that all these austere writers who, when I was a undergraduate, I've looked up to, dare I suggest that they've overlooked this and they've overlooked that? And, and, and you have to say, yes, I do. I do dare to do that. And then I dare to do this. And then I dare to do that. And in the end, if you can, write the book for yourself. Well, I mean, it's interesting because you mentioned Pater, and that's a good example of how that approach can work. I mean, he claimed that, or it was, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but was it not the case that his chapter on Botticelli is what reignited an interest in Botticelli after after Pater? Then it became, yeah. you know, and, and, and so, so there's the power of a critic who's prepared to go against the grain and actually produce this contribution to the field. Everybody can, I mean, in the case of Vermeer, see, there's, Vermeer is rediscovered by um, a writer called Torre Burger. Burger, who's a French uh, writer mm. of the 19th century, who discovers um, a number of, rediscovers a number of artists, but most notably Vermeer. And he discovers him at the same time as photography has really begun to take off as mm. a medium. And I think there's no coincidence. Impressionism is there. They're very interested in optical effects, and Vermeer is this great optical artist. So it, everything's right for him to be rediscovered. And Torre, at the same time as rediscovering Vermeer, just notice it. He does say, and in a way, this is what I'm trying to pick up on, he says, he's an amazingly brilliant artist. And he asks the question, why has he been forgotten for so long? And forgotten so long that many of the pictures that I've discovered by him aren't even listed as him. They're listed <laughs> as by Rembrandt. You know, people had forgotten him so thoroughly, they didn't even know. They kept these amazing paintings, but they put the wrong names on them. And he rediscovered it's Vermeer based on certain signatures and so on and put it all together and said, how mysterious and how different he is from everyone else. And he christened him the Sphinx of Delft, the most mysterious of all the Dutch painters. And that's what stuck. So why is that? Is it just a matter of fashion? I mean, well, I think I, I, I can't, um, I can't, I can't say what I really think because I'm trying to save that for my book. Oh yes, <laughs> no, that's, no, no spoilers. <laughs> yeah. but, it, but it, it does strike me as fascinating because you know some of the some of the authors I enjoy the most have been completely forgotten. People like Stella Benson. I read Stella Benson, and I think, why why is this woman not studied? 
why is she not known? This, the, 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 it's, it's, she's just a wonderful pro stylist, and there's, it, 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 I don't understand it. And yet, it's so easy, particularly in literature, for authors to just be forgotten within within a few decades. And, I think it's very easy in all kinds of spheres, and that's another aspect of liberating yourself to think outside of a certain canon. And that's happened increasingly, um, if you like, in gender identity terms, mm. you know, that, that far more women writers of the past are now being rehabilitated, more black writers of the past are being rehabilitated. But I don't think it should be um, a matter of race or gender. It should just be, you know, anyone should be capable of being rehabilitated. And, and in order to rehabilitate them, that's what you have yeah. to do. You have to see round, you know, the preconceptions. I mean, like the, my last book was about Caravaggio who, hard though it is to believe now, because he's so popular, but for a very, very, very long time, his name was, certainly in academic art circles, his name was Mud. You know, mm. Poussin, just 30 years after Caravaggio died, said Caravaggio was sent into the world to destroy painting, and this idea was put about that he was um, a mere realist who used blood and guts and sexual titillation to sort of paper over the cracks of a very, very shallow mm. sensibility and that, that, you know, there's nothing to him really. It's just all show, um, which is, of course, complete nonsense. He's one of the deepest, most profound thinkers as well as one of the most stunning, striking, dramatic painters who ever lived as, you know, as an artist. But that was in place for an incredibly long time. And, it, and in his case, it was... He was condemned and despised by all those who taught art mm. and all those who made the rules about what art should be. And yet, nonetheless, because his paintings were in incredibly prominent places, um, particularly in Naples and particularly in Rome, all the Spanish artists, because Naples was part of Spain, all the Spanish artists who went to Naples, they couldn't help but be overwhelmed by the yeah. visual impact of the Seven Acts of Mercy, which is the became, in effect, the founding painting of Spanish art. If you look at Velázquez and Ribera, you know, everything in, if you go to the Prado, look at the opening rooms of the Spanish galleries, all of those paintings are profoundly influenced by Caravaggio. Likewise, um, the French, because the French Academy in Rome is based, because Caravaggio painted for the French cardinal, Caravaggio's, the palace where he lived was in the French quarter of mm. Rome, and a lot of his paintings are in the French quarter of Rome. So when they established the French Academy, what do all these French painters look at? But they look at Caravaggio paintings, and you see it, Jacques-Louis David, Theodore Jericho, The Raft of the Medusa, huge homage, in a way, to Caravaggio's art. So his artists refuse to let him go away. I mean, that's a very interesting point, isn't it? How these canons are formed, and in a sense that the... The, the 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 talent of an artist can transcend can break through fashion or critical uh, consensus. That actually it, it's about how how many other artists imitate your work. Absolutely, that's how it's formed. Caravaggio is the great example of that. I mean, in the sense that yes, he he was sort of he was forgotten, forgotten, forgotten. But he, you know, Picasso was obsessed by him. Mm. Um, Picasso said to Salvador Dali, you know, when he was painting Guernica, he said, "Oh, you know, this horse, I can't. The horse in Guernica, I can't." get this horse right. I want a horse that you can smell. Yeah. I want a horse like Caravaggio's horse in The Conversion of Saul. Um, and, 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 and then even later than that, you know, that's you know, the 1930s, but in the 1950s and the 1960s, when still Caravaggio isn't you know, top rank in terms of what an artist or at the courthold would mm. say to you. Um, Again, it's it's not it's not visual artist in terms of a painter or a sculptor. It's Pasolini with his movies, yes. and then after that, it's Martin Scorsese, who, when he's writing um, the script for Taxi Driver, he and Paul Schrader are going to the Met every day in New York. Yeah, well, there's a very painterly quality to a lot of his images. Yeah. I think, particularly Last Temptation of Christ, there's lots of moments which feel like they've been lifted from canvas. Well, they are. I mean, he said it to me. I did an interview with. Oh, right. Him. <laughs> I interviewed Martin once years ago, and he said it's exactly. And he said. What did Caravaggio do? He said he did it now. He did it like it's happening now. So, you know, if I'm going to do The Temptation of Christ, I'm going to do it like Caravaggio. I'm going to do it in Brooklyn. I'll do it in the Bronx. Yeah. I'll yeah. Do it. yeah. <laughs> so is it quite, it must be quite exhilarating to to be, be in a position, I, I, I suppose the word rediscover might be wrong, but to, to re-energize interest in a particular artist who has been unjustly sort of forgotten or written out. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think by the time I wrote my book on Caravaggio, he was such a hugely popular artist that I didn't do that. Mm. I just hope... But your current book, you My say. current book may... I mean, again, Vermeer is such a hugely popular artist. It's more that it would upset the apple cart of people's preconceptions. Yes. I think it personally, for me, it makes him... You know, he, what I think I found out about Vermeer makes him not quite so mysterious. In fact, a lot less mm. mysterious. Although he's still quite mysterious. But it also make, makes him into an artist who was painting about things that can be explained, that yes. I could tell you what it's about. It's about peace. It's about love. It's, a, it's about, and, and, and there's a reason for that. Um, so it's not just mysterious and fascinating yeah. and, ooh, doesn't it look like a camera image? Do you worry, though, that some people might think you're, you're sort of approaching art as a kind of puzzle to be solved and you're explaining it for people, whereas, of course, a lot of it is about drawing out everyone's individual response to a work. I don't... Well, I wouldn't worry about that because it's, I, I know that it's not like that. Right. I, I have just happened... I wouldn't write a book of that kind just for the hell of it. Yeah. I wouldn't turn somebody into a puzzle if they weren't already one. Yeah. If you see what I mean. So I, just, I choose my subjects quite carefully mm. and I choose subjects where I hope there is some scope for original thinking because I think it's really important to... You know, every generation needs to rethink their relationship. Yeah. And I can already, I sort of feel already with some of my work that I'm doing at the moment that it's very bizarre. You know, one of the things I'm writing about, as I just said, it's, it's about peace. It's also about war. Mm. And it's about what happens when people try to take other people's freedom away. Yeah. And then here we are talking about it. And, and, and Ukraine has just been invaded by Russia. And and that is a situation that is frighteningly similar to the situation which Vermeer lived through. And is that something that you're very interested in, in how to make pieces from the past accessible to the modern mindset and modern circumstances and contemporary ideas? I set out to try and do it for myself, and then if other people are interested, I'm really happy. Hmm. But I think if you try to set out... You, I, I'm, you know, uh, I, I know a lot of artists, and... They always, if there's a leitmotif of my conversation with artists where I feel, oh, yes, I'm the same. Mm. <laughs> Not that I'm saying I'm an artist, but I've, where I feel a common sense of yes, is that when you forget why you're doing what you're doing, yeah. that's when you do it best. Right, yeah. So when an artist thinks they're going to make a series of paintings about such and such and such and such, lots of them have said, well, I thought I'd do that. And as, of course, as soon as I decide I'm going to do that, I know it's crap. But so, as soon as I as soon as I actually get so much into it that I'm doing something else without realizing doing something else, well, that's means, when it gets good. It's almost like a kind of <laughs> it's almost like the muse takes control, isn't it? It's it's yes. I think I think that is exactly. I think that the, the, these myths, these legends, these stories, these ideas about creativity. Yeah. Is it the muse? Is it the spirit of Saturn? Whatever it might be. There are lots and lots of, you know, I, I do have a kind of mystical, or not mystical, but a sort of, I have a strong belief in the powers of the unconscious mind yeah. to, to do more, actually, sometimes than the conscious mind can do. I think so, that's fascinating. So, so often, if I'm trying to get to the bottom of something, or I'm trying to get to the point where I can actually say what I want to say, yes. I find that if I can go for a walk for long enough that I've completely forgotten my problem, then yeah. I get the answer. Yeah, I remember hearing Dennis Potter talk about how when he starts to write a scene or a play, he doesn't know what it's about until after he's written it. He doesn't know what, it, what he was doing there. Yeah, I agree and, with that. And I, I mean, I think that's a really exciting way to approach. And I think lots of artists I've met say the same thing. That they thought that, they were doing something about whatever it might be. Yeah. And they suddenly realized, no, actually, it's all about my mum. Yeah, you know, she died last year, and I, 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 you know, and it just sort of comes out. It's come out, but because I didn't try to make it about my mum, it's actually more profoundly about mm. her in a way than if I'd done some very obvious, yes, thing. Yeah, so much of your work has been about, uh, you know, art of the past that has a a, a, a lineage that, that relates to a specific kind of craft. Something that a lot of critics of modern art would say has been lost. The idea of, of 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 uh, it's all hyper conceptual now. It's 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 not it, that we've lost that sort of ability. Do you think that's just reactionary old people getting upset about modern ideas, modern tastes? I think I think it's very difficult to be a modern artist because you, the artists of the past worked within so many conventions. Picasso once said it very well. He said, um, "Back in the day, when when uh, you were commissioned." 
to paint a picture of mm. the virgin and child, then you would automatically and without effort express your originality and individuality by painting the subject that had been given to you. Yes. Whereas the contemporary artist, me, Picasso, ever since the days of Van Gogh, it's been the same, it's been like this. We have to make up our own language. We then have to learn our own language. We then have to find the craft to express yeah. our own language. And, and, and then we have to create a body of work. But I think that's harder. I mean, it's like when it's very hard. Robert Frost said writing poet, writing free verse is like playing tennis without a net. Insofar as you, in a sense, you need when you have those boundaries, when you have the, the, the something to work within, actually that can be a, a means by which creativity can flourish, not stifle. It's interesting that Picasso, who said all that, um, did a lot of work to confine himself within yeah. a kind of tradition. So he would often paint. Um, homages or versions of famous paintings by other artists. He painted right. Manet's Déjeuner sur Lab about 50 different times. He painted um, paintings by Jericho. He painted paintings by Delacroix. He, he did endless sorts of studies. He even used to have the habit of purchasing old master, you know, actual Renaissance frames mm. that would cost maybe £50,000. He would buy a frame that had once had a Botticelli in it, mm. that kind of beautiful Florentine frame, and then he would put a Picasso in it, so that he could, <laughs> and, and it would be a portrait. So you you would get that text. And Picasso, of course, now seems, when you think of a lot, what a lot of contemporary art is, um, Picasso seems profoundly conventional. I mean, yeah, profoundly good. Still working in canvas, but, um, oil paint. You know, it's still got a frame on it. Do, do, are there some forms? Because I noticed you did this, the quotes around art there for some contemporary art. Are there some forms of 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 modern conceptual art that you just think don't qualify as art? That I don't think they. I wouldn't say that anything doesn't qualify as art. I, I absolutely believe that anything. If somebody says that something is art, then it's art. That, that's by definition, that's fine. It just might not be interesting to me at all. The, right. the, the, the problem I have is it came up once, I was once at a very interesting discussion with Nick Sirota, who was founding Tate Modern. Mm. He was actually founding Tate Modern and he wanted to have conversations with people who were in the art world. And I remember, I remember that he was there and there was a very, very, very conventional tie-wearing um, director of the of Tate Britain as it would become, but it was in those days it, neither of them existed. It yes. was just Tate Britain. It was just the Tate, and he was there with his tie on, and and he said, which I thought was very true and kind of poignant. He said, "The trouble is, Nick, that I actually don't think that a lot of things that you are collecting in your contemporary department, I don't think they are the same category of object." as a painting by Gainsborough, mm -hmm. or a painting by Turner, or a painting by Reynolds. Because I don't think, yeah. they, I, I, I don't see why, as he was saying, they actually belong in the same institution. And I can completely see that. Because for me, um, if somebody said to me, what, what's the natural successor to Caravaggio yeah. in the modern world? I wouldn't say, you know, it's an installation by Martin Creed, which involves turning the lights on and turning the lights off. And you go through these spaces and they, the lights go on and the lights... To me, that's that's something else. Yes. It, it's a, it's a, there's, there's a kind of conceptual uh, department over there, but I don't think it's the same thing as a painting by Caravaggio. If I wanted to find something in the modern world that belongs in the same institution or in the same space, or to me it feels as though it's in the same mental space as yeah. a Caravaggio painting, it would be a film, right. be a movie. Yeah. That, yeah. that is surely much closer to what Caravaggio was trying to do. It's telling a story, it's trying to, it's trying to tell a story, it's doing it in, in an image that seems movingly alive. Yes. Um, it, it's enacted by bodies, human bodies, you know, that, or even a play, a modern yeah, play. Yeah, that's very Watching it is closer to me to a Caravaggio painting than it is to going to see um, a very, very, very uh, disembodied or minimal or even maximal um, you know, work of art made out of 16,000 washing machines. I'm not saying it's not art, <laughs> yeah. but I don't see why it has to be in the same so institution. We're, so we're doing a disservice, you're saying, even to modern artists themselves to bracket them together with well, the... I, think, with I, I like to think, as I say, I like to challenge the conventions, or challenge like what, like, 
I don't have the answer, but I think yeah. that's a good question, is why is this stuff in the same kind of place? Yeah. I, I mean, I saw a Martin Creed performance piece in Edinburgh once, and I must say it had nothing for me, and, and there was nothing there that resonated at all. And I, and I wonder whether my my view of it is, is probably a bit harsher than it needs to be because because it it is marketed at, as art, as the same as Garibaldi. Well, it's, as a, the it's same. a very fine line, you know. I mean, and I think it's there's a line, and it's hard to know when it's cut. I mean, I I, I you know I do deeply love a lot of art that falls into the category of conceptual art. Yeah, Richard Wilson's twenty fifty that oil tank that was for long exhibited in the Saatchi Gallery and I think was best when it was in its first original gallery space. I remember seeing an ex installation by Joseph Boyce where he just simply swathed the whole inside of the Anthony Doffé Gallery with thick felt. Yeah. And you just walked through these spaces of thick felt and then in the end there was just a room with a grand piano open and it was amazing. I don't know what it meant, but it was amazing. It was something about... I think it was some kind of reflection on the atrocities of the Second World War. But it it was tremendously moving. But for me, the voice, because it was so tactile and physical, it was like a sculpture. I can see why that would be in a sculpture. So mm. I don't have the answer yeah. to the question. Because if I would have that voice in, then probably I should have the Martin Creed in. But somehow I might feel that it's too far away. Yeah. I, but it's very hard for me. So, you know, I can't say that I've got the answer, but I think it's worth asking the question because I know that so many uh, art institutions, particularly in America, I, I, I know this to be the case, they spend so much money on contemporary art. Contemporary art is so expensive. It's so expensive to maintain. It's so expensive to store. It's yeah. so huge. that, And it can go know, out of fashion they're, very they're, quickly. They're, they're you know? poor. Yeah, and it can go out of fashion very quickly. And that's another that's another yeah. aspect of free thinking and, and, and how free thinking is affected. Mm. Because I think Robert Hughes once wrote, he said it's a very funny piece he wrote about the herd-like mentality of those who collect contemporary art. Yeah. He said, once a certain group of people who are influential in the contemporary art world have spoken or have decided or have, you know, come to the joint conclusion <laughs> that such an artist is important, you know, say, uh, I don't know who it would be, um, uh, Mario Cironi or... or so if they get the sort of Sarchi. Mario Mertz, who does those igloos. They get the seal of approval from Sarchi They get the seal of approval. And he said, as soon as they've got the seal of approval, I can't do Bob's accent, but as soon as they've got the seal of approval, you know, every modern art museum in the world has to buy an example of their work. So they'll all have a Kiefer. They'll all have a Mario Mertz. They'll all have, a, and they're all huge. He said, even, even if there were a museum in Antarctica, the penguins would be queuing up but to see that, the Kiefer. And the, that's why people might become quite cynical about modern art, because they might say, well, all that's happened is some rich person has decided that this should be art, and, and it's not discernibly any different from any of the other stuff that's, that's out there. Well, it's, a, it's an early kind of consensus forming. The pro, the, what's interesting about the, and what's slightly different now, I think, is that the sheer amount, the sheer scale of money yeah. that an institution spends, and I saw this once where I was judging a, a prize at an institution, and, and I said that I didn't think that artist X was very good, and they went, well, no, no, but I mean, they kind of, that artist had to win the prize. It was, it became obvious to me that that artist had to win the prize right. because the museum had just spent 400 grand on their work. Oh, it's a no and the artist then. happened to be shortlisted <laughs> for this big prize. And it's like, oh, I see, okay. And I disagree and he disagrees. But you all agree, so you're going to get your way. <laughs> right, I've got it. Um, but the, the problem with all that is that because there's so much money at stake, you know, say a museum buys a Peter Doig canvas which i think can cost like 20 million pounds so they <laughs> buy that you know they get their trustees to buy it or somebody gives it to them and they know the value of it the disincentive you know in the past when lord layton fell out of fashion he fell out of fashion and the tape would take his stuff and put it in the basement you know so we don't like that stuff anymore yeah now it's like should we put that in the now it's 20 million quid you can't put that in the basement that's got to stay on the wall forever. Yeah. So, so the sort of uh, the idea of that uh, opinion is somehow free when it comes to artists and art, and that, and that we have freedom of speech and freedom of action and freedom. Yeah, well, yeah, we do. But there are all these hidden chains. There are all these hidden uh, structures. Yeah, where you know, where even trustees who haven't perhaps necessarily thought about their values. They're just saying, oh, yeah, no, no, we can't put that downstairs. We can't, we can't take that away. Do you ever think, um, I mean, it struck me that of late, the art that it's, is most lauded, I mean, if we take the Turner Prize, uh, 
has been activist art, art that uh, uh, reinforces a fashionable social justice message. Mm. And is there a risk? That, I mean, that to me strikes me as the kind of work that will age very badly. Yes. And, and it seems so tied to contemporary concerns. I would agree with you. I would agree with you. I think, I think that if, if art where you absolutely know what it's saying, yeah. and it's clear what it's saying, it ain't going to last five minutes. Well, this is what... I, I mean, maybe I'm wrong Generally. about this. But, but, but I, I feel like that... I suppose it, it's not that I don't think that art can be uh, didactic or political or anything like that. It's just that it, it bores me a little if it feels preachy. If mm. it feels like it's it's got a... It, it, you know, it, it's it's sort of poking you in the ribs and saying, you know, you're a bad person, you should think more like this. I mean, do you think there's something to be said for just art that is amoral, doesn't have that? Well, I mean, I think Henry Fusley once said, which I think, which is true, he said, if art is powerful, then art has to have the power to do bad things as well as good things. Yeah. So art can persuade people. Art can make people do things. Uh, art can make its point, even if its point is, is a lie. Yes. And we have to accept that a great artist, a, a tremendously gifted artist, might use all those talents in a Faustian way. Yeah. Because they'd sold their soul to the devil to corrupt and, um, and, 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 you know, so the idea that art is inherently good for the soul is to me as stupid as saying all people are good because yeah. we're all human and humanity is good. The fact is that art is just as capable of being morally questionable uh, as as any individual because art's always made by an individual. But, I, but and that's why I think that that form of criticism where it's 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 effectively not assessing the work it's 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 trying to identify whether or not it sends the correct social message the approved message and that i see that more and more maybe not in art criticism because i'm not familiar enough with it but in film criticism certainly uh in literary criticism most definitely and i'm seeing more and more of that as a development and i find it a bit banal to be honest it is a bit banal i think there's a fixation on on there's a fixation on saying the right thing and 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 somehow mm. if you say it often enough you'll you'll be a very good person. I think, for me, all of that is should happen before you say anything at all. It should already have been processed. Your yeah. ethics, your values. Art is not for that. Not primarily yeah. for that. Yeah. It, 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 it will express it. But it, to me, it's almost... I, I don't know how to express it. It's almost like showing somebody... I don't know how to express it. It's almost as if you're you're constantly building your house. Well, why don't you just live in it? Right. I mean, you know, you, your house is your values. So you make your values, have your values. Don't, you don't have to keep saying what they are, and you don't have to keep demonstrating to everyone what they are, unless you're very nervous about it. Um, Do you feel that? I mean, there's a lot of debates at the moment about about you know whether certain art can be can be stomached. You know, I think of the Eric Gill statue of Prosper and Ariel outside, of, and the man took a hammer to it. Because Eric Gill was not a pleasant human being, and and confessed to molesting his daughters and his family dog, yeah. and, and you know, yeah. and, and is it, we had it with Myra, you know, the image of Myra, the, the child handprints. I can't yeah. remember the name of the artist. I can't, but I know who you mean. Uh, it was uh, in the Saatchi Sensation show. And is there ever? Um, to me, it doesn't because I think I mean you mentioned obviously Caravaggio didn't I think he castrated someone while attempting to kill them. You know, they, killed the, them the other way around. He killed, he killed someone while attempting to castrate him. It's not much better. Um, so, <laughs> no, I, I'd say it's probably worse. <laughs> yeah. But does that mean that, you know, and, and I, does it mean that we shouldn't be able to in, enjoy someone's piece of work or that to, to, to keep it in a prominent place is almost to commemorate the worst aspects of their character? Well, in the case of his book, see, I think, again, I don't like this idea that everything is just rules. Mm. Every case is different. I mean, my book about Caravaggio um, is a, again, didn't quite start out like that, but it ends up because I felt I properly understood him and, and those around him and why they argued and what their codes were. Mm. So I think if you read my book, you might think, well, actually, if Caravaggio hadn't killed that man, 
who, who you know, who was a really nasty man. He ran a group of um, uh, female prostitutes in right. Rome, and, and, and they were very young, and he was very brutal with them. So he was a really unpleasant guy. And Caravaggio, who was friends with some of these prostitutes, whom he painted, but they were his models, yes. and he seems to have protected uh, on the streets of Rome when things went wrong in their lives he was so if you read all that and then you and then you think oh he, okay so the man he castrated or tried to castrate was actually you know somebody with serial convictions of a sexual assault and, and, and murder yes and was really unpleasant and they had no police force in those days and if you were going to do anything you take the law into your if you did it so you know that is slightly different but then, everything is different when you look at it closely I can from what see you that necessarily anything. imagine. I'm not saying Caravaggio was a saint or that he was necessarily what I would call a good man. Yes. But it, it's more complicated than the stereotype or the newspaper headline. Yes. You look behind the newspaper headline. I mean, yeah. that's interesting, though, because I mean that did happen. I mean, we're going back maybe even yeah, 10 well, years. In now, past it, cases, you it see, has that's happened. the thing. It comes out, in, and, and then you have to make a judgment. And it's you know, and it's and it's interesting as to whether you cancel that person completely, or do you use the website of um, the institution to furnish extra details? And these, and mm. I think it's very good that these questions are being asked, and it's very good that you have these new um, standards uh, that are really thought about and, and interrogated and proper, properly. Um, uh, inspected, but it's it's very very difficult to come up with an absolute rule that will cover all cases. You have to assess each case, each and every case, on its merit. It's difficult, though, isn't it? I mean, I, I wrote a piece sort of saying that I didn't much well, I didn't at all approve of the man taking the hammer to the Eric Gill statue. I was trying to say it's perfectly possible to appreciate that statue without at all endorsing anything that the man did. And and some of the reactions I got were people were they couldn't. They don't think that's possible at all. That I actually... would tend to agree with you, but I would also respect their feelings. Yeah, yeah. No, I understand um, the strength of feeling because it's a horrible crime. I, I completely understand that. But I, I, I Eric, I, Eric Gill is probably one of the one of the hardest. Yeah, he is <laughs> of characters that are, you know cases that I've thought about, um, and a lot came out in that biography. Mm. So. Yeah, it's 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 a very tough one. But then, even going back further, I mean, if, if you take Cellini, and you know, in Cellini's autobiography, he's not a nice person. He's killed people. He's committed sexual assault. Mm. One of the people he has sex with is underage, most definitely. And um, and then you go, and then you see his uh, Perseus, and you think, well, I wouldn't want that removed from the piazza because it's just no, uh, you know, no, absolutely. I mean, I I I would. Once you've destroyed something, once you've taken the statue down, once you've burnt it, once you've got rid of it, you have got no chance to revisit your values, your judgments. Yeah. Um, I mean, Chairman Mao thought that uh, everything to do with the Chinese ancien regime, um, except, of course, the um, fascistic imperialism of the first emperor, whose tomb we now know, yeah. um, was so evil that it had to be destroyed. Yes. So Mao and his cultural cleansing cohorts destroyed virtually all, um, you know, Chinese old things. Yeah. I mean, furniture, buildings, paintings, works of art, that which survives in the Forbidden City, that which survives in Taiwan because it was taken away. Um, and likewise, here in the British Isles, um, the zealots of the Church of England, the Protestant fanatics, the Maoists, Protestants, yes. if you like, of the 1530s in particular, much less under Cromwell, but a little bit then too. But basically between, I think, around 1532 and 1560, 99% of all British art was destroyed mm. uh, because it was deemed to be... So I, I would say, God, when you think what that was, those amazing things that were destroyed. Yeah, exactly. I would be very, very careful about destroying something because you don't approve of the values that brought it into being. Well, also because those values keep changing. Well, They're right, ever shifting. Yeah, values do keep changing. I mean, I'm not, I, I, I find it hard. You know, obviously, there would always be certain people with certain roles in history who you would you say, well, actually, you know, 
they're not going to get a blue plaque, as it yeah, were, or they're yeah. not going to be, they're not going to win anyone's admiration nowadays. But it seems to me that this sort of habit of passing judgment, just people don't want to, don't think enough about themselves. If you pass judgment on yourself a bit more before you start mm. going to destroy things. Does it ever affect your appreciation of a work if you just know more about the the individual who did it? And you, and well, I can't think of that many examples no, of no. great artists where, or you know, artists whom I greatly admire, where I know something terrible about them, or where they did something that awful. What um, I mean, for instance, like, Eric Gill is the is probably the outstanding example. I've, I've seen activists but, talk about Picasso as well in terms of his sexual. Absolutely. No, I can, I can understand that. And I look, I, I do, having, you know, studied Picasso quite a lot and just interested in him, and I know something about his various relationships, mm. um, which could be highly, highly destructive and toxic for the women involved. So you look at the images that were produced out of that relationship, yes. and it definitely affects how you think about them. Yes. Um, but I would have said that the the best response to those feelings, if they're felt strongly enough, is to to is to write a revisionist history of Picasso's relationship, for example, with Dora Maar, yeah. in, in, including a whole load of her work in which she comments on the relationship and not let Picasso be the sole voice. It's not to destroy his work, yes. but maybe to write, a, a, as I say, a revised version of how their relationship was that would make much, much more space in it for the woman's point of view. I suppose that's the equivalent of you know not tearing down a, a statue of a slaver putting up a plaque to explain the historical context beside I think it. That, I think that's generally is, is much better because then, in my opinion, uh, if you put up a plaque, if, if, if you know that this person was involved in the slave trade and, and there's a history, say, in that square, in London, mm. why is it that? You know, then that place can become, it could become the opposite of the monument that it once was. Yes. So, so the because monuments can be changed into other things. They can become, you know, the monument to the slaver could, in effect, become a monument to the importance of never letting that happen again. Yes, a kind of reminder of the worst aspects of history. You, yes. Whereas if you smash it and destroy it, mm. I mean, surely that's, for example, you know, why haven't they destroyed the concentration camps? Yes. Yeah, of course. You can visit them. Yeah. I, I don't think I'd have the strength to do that, but um, th that is exactly what they're yeah, yeah. saying. You know, it's in a sense, it's it's appropriating it in a way that's more creative than simply uh, bringing the bulldozers mm. in. <clears throat> can I ask you about how you begun in this world? But, you know, what, what was it? Was it an early impulse that you had to become a critic or was it just off the back of a love of art? That you had in um, some kind of an innate well, way. I, I always thought I was going to be a writer, but I, I like and I enjoyed writing about. I discovered that I was very interested in art when I was about seventeen, uh, when I went to Italy, um, and did a course, right, and just became like really interested. My mum had taken me to Italy on holiday uh, when I was about seven mm. or eight, and I remember we made a huge collection of postcards of all the churches we went into, and we made all these got all these postcards and made a great big album. of like yeah, a, like almost like a family album, but it was just—it wasn't photographs of us. It was photographs of you know what we'd seen, and I and I just really remember doing that and sort of thinking, oh, yeah, I'd like to go and see more. So it was vocational to you. It was just a. Some... Uh, I don't know if it was vocational. I was just fascinated by art, and um, I was interested. I read English literature at mm. university, and I was very interested when I started trying to go into art writing. Mm. Um, it struck me as most of it being profoundly inadequate compared to what I was used to. Right. So I thought, well, how come Rembrandt doesn't have anything like the caliber of writers writing about him as Shakespeare does? Yeah. Why is that? Why does art not have better voices? And I think I, I think one part of the reason for that was that art history itself, as a discipline, didn't begin fundamentally with a curiosity about the nature of art or the meaning of art. Mm. Art history as a discipline was invented so that rich people, whether in Italy or in England, could know that that definitely is a Titian. Yeah. So, so the, I'd, the sort of the grand tour. Yeah, so <laughs> I would read, well, in my naivety, just fresh from reading all the literary criticism that I'd been reading when I was at university doing English, 
I, I turned to re reading about art, and I thought, well, I'm sure this writer, he's, he's going to tell me what Rembrandt's essentially trying to do. He's going to yeah. take me to the core of it. And it's endless descriptions of, is it painted on canvas or is it painted on wood and what yeah. kind of pigments is it? And it took me quite a long time to realize that they're doing all that just so that they could say it is by a Rembrandt. Once they've done that, they're not actually that... In <laughs> that did change, you know, probably just at around the time when I was beginning to study art history. Yes. It it, art history itself changed. I mean, there were very interesting books like the work of T.J. Clarke. I don't know if you know his no, book. No, don't. He wrote a fantastic book called The Painting of Modern Life about French art um, in mm. the period of Impressionism and just before and just after, um, in which he's really interrogating and sort of he does exactly what I, I, in a way, the sort of thing that I do. So, the, you know, Manet paints Olympia, yeah, who seems to be a child prostitute. So T.J. Clarke investigate. you know, what who were these women? Where yes. did they exist? What and who was she? And who was the actual model? And so on. So he's really interrogating the society and yeah. getting behind the painting and finding out what's going on, which I find very, very interesting. Although I didn't encounter his work till till quite a lot after I was at um, at the Courtauld. So that still. so that kind of style is relatively new then, because I mean that's that's the sort of criticism that gets me excited about works of art and makes me want to go and see them. I, th I would say it's relatively new. Right. It's not entirely new. I mean, people like Roberto Longhi were doing that kind of thing in Italy uh, longer ago, but not very well known, and not certainly not much translated into English. But um, yes, it is. I, I would say it is. So you were influenced by that sort of type of writing? Um, well, not initially. No, I was interested. I was influenced more by, um, say, Robert Hughes and, and Lawrence Gowing. I like very much. In fact, Lawrence Gowing, who wrote the, in some respects, the seminal book. If I can say that on Vermeer, he actually was the one who s said to me just not long before he died, and he was very um, quite old when I met him for mm. the first time. He said, oh, "I do hope you'll write another book about Vermeer because he does need one." That was <laughs> that would have been you know Great. more than twenty years ago. <laughs> so, um, so I thought, well, I better do that if Lawrence has said so. Yeah, um, you fulfilled but, that obligation. Then. But he's a wonderful writer. His book on right. Turner, it's a book called is it called Vision and Imagination. It's a fantastic book. And do you prefer writing about artists that are long dead? <laughs> Isn't there always? No, the, I, you, mean, I mean, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm interested. You know, you talk, you asked earlier. You know, I'm interested in art that's bad. Yeah, and that has done bad things. You know, I made a, two of my favourite films that I've ever made. One of them was a film entirely about Hitler mm. and 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 the art of Nazi Germany and 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 how he and his cronies used art to you know, as, as, as a form of propaganda warfare yeah. to prepare the ground for what became the final solution. And the other one was a film about Stalin and how Stalin used art yes. to control and intimidate um, people and to, to, you know, promulgate a certain view of the world. And I remember, always remember going to the new Tretyakov gallery. We were, gonna, we were trying to film, we were trying to film a, a painting of Stalin mm. For this for this program and our fixer who always said whatever you wanted oh yes i've sorted it out yeah but often this was not the case okay. it, was, it was a bit of a case of like always telling always tell them what they want to hear yeah, yeah. and uh, so i said are you sure that the new trechikov gallery they've actually got a painting of stalin on the wall so no he's definitely it's no, no problem right. the director's going you know she definitely got it i was going that can't be right that can't be so we got there it's the new Chetrikov gallery. And of course, there's no painting by yeah. Stalin on the wall. You know, there's the Kandinsky and there's all the stuff. But there's no Stalin. <laughs> and um, the director was so upset, she started sort of shouting and screaming at the fixer. And the, and the director of the museum, my director, my television director, was yeah. shouting and screaming, getting very upset with the fixer. The director of the museum came in as a lady. And she looked at me and she looked at these people all shouting and saying, well, what's the problem? And I said, well, the painting of Stalin, it's not, we, we were told we could film it, apparently. And she said, oh, no, no, no. Oh, no. You don't have that on the wall now. He said, but I could take you to see it. And I thought, wow. And I said, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, now, yes, yes, we'll go and get it from the basement. And we'll, and then we'll bring it up. And I said, well, do you think we could go down to the basement with you? And I was getting the cameraman saying, yeah. come on, come on. <laughs> So he got on my shoulder and we went down. 
And this lady, you would never happen anywhere else yeah. except Russia, uh, whether, you know, there's very, very informal. Um, but, but this, you know, and uh, this would certainly not happen in Russia now. Mm. Um, but uh, she took me downstairs and they couldn't find this painting anyway. They're pulling out these racks, pulling out everything, pulling out everything, pulling out, and they couldn't find this picture of stuff, famous picture of stuff. And eventually they found it and they pulled it out. And I went, wow. And he's, there he is, standing above a wheat field with a combine harvester. It's part of the five-year plan propaganda. Yeah. And, um, and I suddenly turned around and everybody had gone. There'd been like 20 people. But as soon as they pulled Stalin into the room, they all disappeared. Really? They didn't want to be there with him. Wow. It was too frightening a presence. Did all this make it into the film? Yeah. Right. That was one of my favorite sequences yeah. in the film. Because it was like, well, he's gone. And there he is, Stalin. And it's this sort of perfect landscape. It's almost like a parody of a Dutch landscape painting, except with a huge Stalin in the middle looking very pleased with himself. Yeah. And, and this all this fertile wheat. But just behind a tree almost, there's just this little black car. And you know that that's like, ooh, there's, there's the secret police. Yeah, yeah. And it's maybe um, it's the sort of painting that, that uh, you know, makes you think, well, Stalin, Putin... You know, that gap in the middle, it's as if it never happened. Well, it's designed to intimidate that kind of imagery, isn't it? Yeah. And you see this, I suppose it is similar, although not probably, well, no, it is. There's, you know, I don't know if you saw the image of Putin with his bear, holding hands with the bear, or yeah. images of him, yeah. the machismo that he he's trying to convey. Human. I mean, it's, there's, it's a, there's a whole, I mean, I am fascinated by that. I've written a lot about it. This whole uh, the propaganda imagery mm. and how propaganda, the, and they do tend to have a sense of history. You know, yeah. this sense of surprise that Putin has done what he's done. Um, he's got a very, very strong, it's not, a, it's a warped and it's it's not a helpful sense of history, but it is a sense of history. Yeah, yeah. You know? but, but, but this is what I was saying about propaganda or something that's pushing a message so forcefully. It, it kind of denudes the artistic impact for me or any, you know, it, it can't be well, good. Well, it does, I, but the thing is, it, it's, it's also, you know, it's also quite a helpful tool for understanding people. Right. You know, I think, uh, who was it who recently got rid of all, you know, all humanities education in this country? <laughs> More or less, you know, the, 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 the funding for humanities. Oh, right, I see. You know, education. Yeah. So people studying art history, people studying history, people studying anything that isn't strictly vocational. Yes. Has been massively cut on the basis that it's not really helpful to well, people. I think they think it's a luxury. I think they... it's a luxury, yeah. It's a luxury. Well, I would say, is it a luxury being able to understand people like Putin? Because it's only through really understanding things like art and history and politics that you will understand that person and be able to warn yourself against them and yeah. be alert to them. If everybody's just doing vocational stuff and they've got their nose to the grindstone and nobody is actually doing the business of thinking about the world, then you end up with an impoverished society and you end up with a society that only wakes up to find that this sort of stuff has happened because no one's been thinking about it carefully enough. Yeah. I mean, you, end up with, you end up with a foreign office where nobody can speak Arabic anymore, You end up, which apparently happens in America, right. which is yeah. one of the reasons you know, why everything goes so bad for the Americans in the Middle East when they go there because they don't understand the languages. They don't understand the history. You have to understand this stuff. Yeah, I mean, again and again, I come up with this 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 um, this complaint. You know that 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 the money should be reserved for uh, non artistic enterprises for for STEM subjects for this kind of thing, as though art and literature isn't at the core of who we are and isn't a major aspect of our culture. It's crazy. I mean, it's properly properly crazy. I mean, I've been thinking of there was an old documentary where Margaret Thatcher's going around Somerville years after she left there and talks to a young student and asks what she does, and the student says. She does some, it's some humanity subject. And Thatcher says, oh, what a, she says, what a luxury that is. What a, almost dismissive, almost like, well, there's no, you, you won't be able to help, you won't be able to implement that in society in any practical way, so what's the point? But then, but then I think just even, even the way in which art can infuse our architecture and our, our surroundings is so important. Well, would and, you and, rather have a politician, if you turn that back on Margaret? Yeah. Would you rather have a politician or... Yeah. some a foreign minister would you rather have one who actually knew the history of the country and the geography right. of the country and the cultural attitudes prevailing in that country or would you rather have somebody who didn't know anything about that yeah who yeah. 
who had studied engineering and was only interested in engineering. I mean, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with engineering. That's great. But you need, you need all these things in a society and you need all these things in a culture. And especially people in a political culture shouldn't be attacking the humanities. Are they bonkers? Yeah, I think it's, it, it comes from a lack of imagination, I think, you know, because they don't necessarily connect with these subjects or these, uh, these interests. They think that maybe no one should or that it's, no, it, it's seen as frivolous. But I can't imagine life without, without the capacity to be moved by art. Yeah, and 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 the other thing is, is people don't think it's frivolous. I mean, no, people, no. Pe- people understand, you know, like people love gardening. Are you going to make gardening against the law? Are you going to make gardening like, oh no, that's frivolous. It's a luxury. No, they won't. Well, neither should be reading books. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, it's it's, it's it, and it is to be encouraged. So do you think that more needs to be done for arts funding in this country? I think, yes. It'll always be the least priority, though, won't it? Yeah, but I don't think it should be the least priority. The thing is, when you're, when you're spending nothing on it, yeah. um, then you can only go in a good direction. Yeah. But unfortunately, it's very prevalent all over our society at the moment, this kind of institutional philistinism and lack of um, insight. I think it goes in waves, and we're just in a mm. very, very down wave. Well, well, I suppose people would say, you know, with the cost of living crisis, with people struggling, why would you divert resources to something that we don't need? Yeah, but you're in danger. See, one of the why Britain is attractive, in my opinion, to other people. You know, why 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 people want to to come here? Why why they want to help us or support us or why why they like us yes. is because it's interesting. Yeah, and, and it's culturally rich and it's various and it has great theatre and we have a great history of. We have great literary traditions. We have great museums. The museums are all free, which means not only that they're free, but more importantly, you don't have to queue. You yeah. go to the Louvre, you've got to wait for an hour to get in because they've got this ridiculous fascist pyramid yes. <laughs> you know, controlling access. Um, you know, and, and that's a big, big deal. So, you know, and, and that is that that does amount to an element of funding to have a, to have free museums. And as yeah. a result of which, you know, far more people go to museums than they do go than than go to football matches. Yeah. Yeah. But but I think there I do feel that there's a danger of um the the texture of of experience becoming somehow poorer um at the moment. Yeah. That seems to me to be uh, quite a strong danger. In Meaning the, what? Well, in the sense that um a lot of stuff's been killed by the internet and been replaced by versions of it that aren't necessarily better. Let's say newspapers have been more or less killed. Yes. You know, yes. Newspapers are not what they once were at all. I mean they they still kind of appear but they're not what. Yeah. You know, if you bought a newspaper, you go and find in your library a newspaper from 1986 and read it, and you'll be, oh my goodness, you know, yeah. back in the day, the Independent had 200 foreign correspondents or something. Yes. The New York Times barely has. Well, that they've got there. no money now. They've got no, no, no one. No, none of them have any money, so that's gone. And television has become extremely, um, you know, market-led. So that even state television here, BBC, is essentially market-led television. It's not what I would say is state. Is, is, you know. It doesn't do a different job than what the others do. And do you think there's a risk that with the, the rise of the digital age or whatever that people's uh, the people's interest in art depletes? And I mean, I think you mentioned the Louvre. I remember when I saw the Mona Lisa, I couldn't see it mm, no, that's Be- because true. everyone was I mean, around with their fa- sa- phones I, I, out taking pictures it, of it. I think it's the other way around. Uh, my publisher tells me that people are buying more books now. Really? Yeah, that be- books are selling better, especially. Sort of hardback books about interesting things. Not, that, I'm not uh, just talking novels. Might that be a reaction against the, this quite, this quite, culture? Quite possibly, or, or a refuge from it. Yeah. Um, so I, I just I, I think it's a danger, and it's 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 um, you know something that people need to be on their guard against, and it's another thing that constrains because I think free speech is one of your sort of motifs, but it's another thing that constrains freedom of thought. One of my favorite quotes, talking about you know the dominance of mass media, mass culture, mm. one of my favorite quotes is by Andy Warhol, and I think it's a stroke of genius. He said, in Russia, under communism, they tried to make everyone and everything the same by using law and repression and force. Here in America, Everything and everyone just becomes the same 
automatically. <laughs> it's called capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, which I think is such a, you know, it's just, it's, one shouldn't laugh, but it's such a... It's quite depressing, though. It's depressing, but it's very, <laughs> very, very true. Well, that goes back to what you were saying earlier about the, the, there's a kind of herd-like instinct to human beings, and we almost do it ourselves. We do. We have to. I, I think that's a very that's very well put. I think you have to to guard against it. Yes, and to keep yourself. You know, so many writers and poets and artists have written about this: is to try and keep yourself as fresh as when you were a child, as questioning as when you were a child, even when you're an adult. Yeah. Um, take nothing for granted. And it's it's a lot easier said than done, and I certainly don't manage it in my own life. I I try, but I definitely don't manage it. This has been the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle, and my guest, the art historian and broadcaster, Andrew Graham Dixon. Please do check out Andrew's website. You'll have access to all of his archive as well as his regular lectures over Zoom. And if you enjoyed the show, please do like and subscribe and join us next week when we're going to have another fabulous guest. See you then.